Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Hey, Missoula, Mandela here. We are speaking this evening with my mom, Jeannie Van Eden. Jeannie grew up in Valier, Montana, on the Canadian border. She spent much of her young life on a wheat farm, driving a Land Rover over the open plains of Montana, and fly fishing with her father and laying on her back, watching the airplanes fly overhead. In 1963, she graduated from the University of Montana, one of the only women to graduate with a degree in business administration. She was hired by United Airlines in 1963 when flight attendants were called stewardesses. Her career flying internationally lasted over 40 years. Jeannie, my mom, has traveled extensively throughout Asia, China, Southeast Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, Central America, Australia, and the Pacific Rim. Tonight we're going to be talking to Jeannie about what it was like to work for the airlines in the 1960s, the regulations they placed on the stewardesses during that time, why stewardesses are now called flight attendants, the history of terrorism in the airlines, and the changes that she has seen in the countries and cities she's been visiting for the past 50 years. Mom, Thank you so much for joining us this evening and telling us about your career flying internationally. Please tell us about where you grew up and how outdoor adventure was part of your childhood. I was born in 1941 in a small town called Valier, Montana, northwest of Great Falls, and not too far from Glacier Park and the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And I think that uh, having grown up there, that probably introduced me to camping and all the fishing and whatever. My childhood was spent on a prairie with no fences, and my uh, dad gave us uh, kids a small Land Rover to play with when I was 10, and my brother was 8, and uh, that's quite a privilege to be able to drive a vehicle freely in the, in the prairie when you're that young. But he just said, you know, don't go any roads. And so there we had it. Within 20 minutes, we could be in the mountains up there by Dupuyer. Then we also had a lake in our little town. And then we drove this Jeep around this lake in, in the sand and always got stuck or whatever. But so you, when you did this, you fantasized Africa. My father was quite a sportsman. Most of our meals were the pheasant or duck or elk, all kinds, always fish on our table. So I was able to fish as a little kid up there by Dupuyer, love it, still go back. Just a basic fisherman, like to lean back and grab a grasshopper and kind of lay in my back and, you know, wait for the fish to happen. I'm not too uh, much of a fishing in auto anymore. But I then became a flight attendant and also fished all over the place in Mount Kenya, Tasmania. I thank Montana for my introduction into a life of travel. So my first sight of a mysterious kind of thing going on in terms of travel was when in the late 50s, I think probably then more maybe military aircraft, but some of the early commercial aviation was going across, you know, the big sky there. And so they left this jet 
trail and it's just like this perfect circle overhead and there you're sitting in by this lake in Valir and you wonder there must be some place else here we're gonna go. I was fascinated by airplanes then never ever rode on one until I got my job with United Airlines and that's uh, a long time ago. Every single day I played outside in the summertime from about nine in the morning till the sun went down which is 9.45 at night. But we played outside all day long. I didn't play indoor sewing girls games. I was with my brother. They had the most fun, you know. I figured out that early, that a guy was having more fun here. So I tried to do guy things. After I had a job with United Airlines that kept me <laughs> grounded there for a while, must have been the 70s, mid-70s, after being in big cities mostly for 15 years or so, I went back to Missoula and took a survival course backpacking wilderness survival with the smoke jumpers. I got to train with those people for the whole summer class. We worked out by going up to the M first thing in the morning. Oh God, I can't believe I even did that. Our end project for a week or so was to go up into the Bob Marshland and survive with a compass and some bushwhacking and occasionally a use of a snow pick. That was so much fun that I actually got through that. These were days before Outward Bound. Afterwards, when you realize you got through that freezing cold and getting lost, you just have enough courage to go, whatever, fishing by yourself as a woman even. You get all this confidence from this class. So as a result, I've um, walked a lot of miles sometimes with myself. Don't be afraid of the bear country, but it's a good idea to have somebody with you. Once I was going to chase a bicycle trip on behalf of the grizzly, which was very endangered then, but interesting things are really happening still about defining the grizzly and the danger in Glacier Park, for instance. I go to Glacier all the time, and I'm by myself usually, but I'm not afraid to do it by myself. We always talk about the night of the grizzly when those two women were taken the same night, different bears, different mountain ranges, far apart from each other. You know, women were dissuaded to be in a hiking trail in a glacier area at all because our femininity, first of all, was the first to be to blame officially. These women were sleeping with a partner. They didn't get attacked, only the two women, each separate, you know, these are miles away. So they thought, well, the women's odors and all kinds of things must have been with a grizzly bear. But all kinds of things came into the fact that the two women got chosen to be taken away by the grizzly. The same night, many, many miles away, you know, two big mountain peaks away from each other, different bears. But the odors of everyone, not just female, our food odors and shaving cream and men and all kinds of body smells, there's no gender to it. They will chomp both of you. So just because, you know, you're a woman and you wear perfume or whatever, don't be discouraged to go out in the wilderness. I can remember not long after that tragedy happened, I think it was in 1969. Many stories have been written about it, first published in Sports Illustrated, then a book, that they had um, posters as you began to walk on the trail, the trailhead that said, you know, nine miles to winter. They were advising women not to go walking at certain times of the month. That's not fair. <laughs> All kinds of attention needs to be paid to the issue of bear safety, and uh, I think we took the heavy there for a while. Also in 1963, I remember the Wilderness Act. The Wilderness Act of 1963 set aside the Bob Marshall and lands like it. That is 50 years old now, that wonderful piece of federal legislation. And, and I would like to acknowledge the effort 50 years ago for that legislation to be passed. We're speaking with my mom, Jeannie van Eden. 
about 50 plus years of aviation. She flew for United Airlines internationally, flying through Europe, South America, Asia primarily, and Australia. Mom, I'd love to talk to you about when you were little, fly fishing with your dad, which you always described as being very similar to the movie A River Runs Through It, laying on your back and staring up at the sky in Montana and seeing the jets fly over and what you thought about that industry and if you ever imagined where those planes were going and if you ever imagined yourself going from a very rural farm community in north central Montana, always being outside to eventually traveling the world for over 40 years with United Airlines. Well, my own mother wrote a short story about this that I um, got my beginnings of aviation industry by looking at the jet trail, which may be true, you know, because that's pretty interesting when you really have never been on a plane and the town you lived in, you know, it was 600 people and whatever. So where are these guys going? So I really wanted to know more about this airplane ride overhead. So it took me a long time, but after graduating from the university here, went on an interview with United Airlines. I had no idea it was that big, but at the time we were almost, you know, the biggest airline in the, what they used to say, free world. The hiring process was sort of interesting. The marketing slogan, fly the friendly skies, comes to mind, but you had to have this smile. I mean, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't get hired. And I can attest to that because I had a small amount of dentistry on my front teeth, just a little gold line. No, you had to have perfect teeth before you would be hired and, and among other things, weight and age and whatever. But So I had almost a thousand plus of dental work done to buy my new smile you know, so I can work for this airline that required a smile. But that's the deal. The marketing attraction then was that there would be this uh, very good-looking woman with a smile on her face face standing there you know when you're bored they required it that we look good so the flight attendant they call it stewardess then was really a coveted job even there was a life magazine article in the 60s and the, on the cover of it was two great looking pan am flight attendants but this is the cover of life the heading in the magazine said the world's most coveted profession and then so you got to turn the pages and find the life of a twa or pan american hostess i mean that's got to be really good but so Indeed, in the 60s, there was a lot of people that interviewed that wasn't hired, and they used to tell us, you know, we're one out of many hundreds before we reached the end of the um, hiring process. But I made it. (laughs) It's sort of funny because I made it by the skin of my teeth. Fun part is, we always talk about my base growing up in this tiny little town in Montana, but I end up in Manhattan, New York City. That's a drastic difference there. And literally overnight, I was living in New York City. I lived in New York for a couple of years and then went to San Francisco, where I pretty much stayed for almost the next 40 and flew internationally. We're speaking to my mom, Jeannie Van Eden, about 50 years of aviation. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. Mom, Jeannie, I'd like to play a song. I'd like for you to play a song that reminds you of your early childhood, early adventures growing up in Valier, Montana, part of it on a wheat farm. What song reminds you of your early childhood growing up in Montana? Well, without a doubt, this song is called Don't Fence Me In. High, white, handsome skies here, an open prairie that you can just play in without any rules, you know. And so should you get constricted, you only go so far as the fence. That's no fun. So the song that they played often in the 40s and 50s on the radio was called Don't Fence Me In. Give me a lamb, let's lamb. It's the trail has traveled with Mandela. Hey, Missoula, Mandela here. 
We are speaking this evening with my mom, Jeannie von Yeden. Tonight we're going to be talking to Jeannie about what it was like to work for the airlines in the 1960s, the regulations they placed on the stewardesses during that time, why stewardesses are now called flight attendants, the history of terrorism in the airlines, and the changes that she has seen in the countries and cities she's been visiting for the past 50 years. Mom, I'd like to talk to you about being hired in 1963 to work for the airlines. What was it like flying in the 60s? Gosh, it just comes to mind as a flash of a memory. I, I was in Athens, but I was on a vacation here. And my friend just drove his car right up to the steps of this jet. It was a 707. Think of the difference in security you have to go through now. I mean, he just went and parked the car right there, and, and you got out, and there was a big, long steps that you climbed to get on your jet. The difference that comes to mind is the lack of the security that you have to go through now in the most wonderful, casual way that flying was in terms of wonderful service and those guys lit up a cigar all of a sudden after dinner, all at the same time. People really dress to fly. I have a framed picture of President Nixon and his wife, and then other women also in the first-class cabin. But they all had a beautiful hat on. Gosh, the feathers, the kind that you wear to the ascot races in England or something. But, gee, just think of it now. The flight attendants, like some great hotels in the world still, were wearing white gloves when you walked past them. And that was required. And real strict appearance standards and checks. There's even something in the Smithsonian about us reaching behind us for a mirror because the seams in the, the back of our stockings had to be perfectly straight. The weight specification was quite precise and also height. And by the way, all of this, because we are a cousin of how the Air Force was run. And so if you think of what the military standards for their uniform, if you think of that, then that's the thing they applied also to commercial aviation. The skirt was very, very tight fitting and our bottom side was at eye level of a passenger quite often in these especially smaller airplanes of Icon or something where you're actually kind of walking on a slant when you greet them on the ground. So they reckoned that we all had to wear for sure a girdle or the looseness of your skin there would be too close proximity, you know, to that businessman. So this terrible rule of having to wear a girdle and, and having to wear white gloves and being so thin was a great pressure on us, actually. Part of the history is that when an airplane flew, some of the airplanes, you know, that I was on in the beginning had two propellers, and the weight on board, people and freight, is taken in. So that's another reason we had to be quite thin. But it was also chauvinism, you know, and we were held up as kind of a fantasy to businessmen that we would be all these young women that were quite nice-looking and dressed in this military uniform. And we were also all single. And that particular policy was very interesting to define and wonder about. It's certainly a, a control issue, but they also had a signed papers. Some of us missed it, and I know I never signed it, but right then in the early 60s, we had a sign that we would resign at age, I think it was 26 or something. Certainly, we were saying that we were no good to them, and we would get out of there having passed our prime in looks, as if there's a certain cutoff for an employee flight attendant. That just wouldn't hold anymore. But many, many women were dismissed because they became too old or had an extra pound or two, or their marriage was discovered. So it wasn't until the Equal Rights Amendment in the late 60s and all those wonderful new rules came, were we able to say to our manager, what does our being married or not have to do with our job? So we got that rule changed and 
And of course, we got the age rule changed and we got the weight rule changed. But it takes a different person now, really, with the terrorism. The age and size of a flight attendant is not in the reckoning. The flight attendant is a safety professional now. The flight attendant isn't a hostess, stewardess anymore. He and she are safety professionals, and in some cases, the first in the line of defense of the country, and particularly in the war on terrorism. Some of the first to be killed were the onboard flight attendant and those planes that went into the Twin Towers. So our job completely changed after that. I worked about another year before resigning, but I remember towards the end, a lot of us were taking karate courses, and we were trained in protecting the cockpit, and still are, you know, we were very important when they do have to step out for a minute. So we're defending the cabin there. It takes a lot of time to set up all the barriers we do when the pilot steps out, only for a second, by the way. But if you think of the difference between when I was hired I mean, look, I was hired because of my looks. I mean, simple. But in the end, you were required to take a karate course and protect a doorway. It just came full circle of a new definition. So there you have it. Flight attendant is a safety professional. Flight attendants in the beginning of our job classification were all nurses, and they were there for the medical reason that something's going to happen, you know, between the next stop. So we're not for the perhaps fear of the public of going someplace mysterious up in the air far away from home without having a doctor nearby, you know. So it helped a lot of people to fly because, after all, you're in the presence of a trained nurse. And so later on, they dropped that requirement, and then... And the whole marketing image changed to that these are all young women. There weren't men. And the major customer was indeed a businessman. And so the marketing approach would be to attract them to come to fly our airline. Then later on, of course, we hired men by the law of equal rights in the late 60s. We had to change our name. And once again, you know, from nurse, hostess, stewardess, stewardess for a long time, we had to become flight attendants. But the problem also in the gender of the thing, because we had the men for the first time, except for the wonderful Hawaiian stewards. We had a stewardess and steward. It's confusing with payroll and all that, you know, what's gender got to do with it. So to incorporate both genders into our job classification, they changed the name to flight attendant. And there you have it. So... In the early days were stewardesses, and that's what I was hired to be. Mom, I'd like to talk to you about going on a flight back in the 60s, or in the early years of you flying with United Airlines, as being somewhat of an event. People would dress up to get on the airplane, and the food lasted a long time. You were a chef in the first-class cabin for a number of decades. Tell us more about that, how getting on a flight was more of, of an event. How did that change, and why did that change? You know, I'd like to think that it's still an event because there's lots of wonderful families going on their trips and it's kind of an event, but we don't dress up for it anymore. And no one does to a lot of things that we used to. But in the early days, it was almost a social prerequisite, particularly if you're going to be in first class, to dress well. And furthermore, the food and the service you got would attend to the fact that you were dressed like that because we treated you quite well in, in first class, particularly later on in the Pacific routes that I flew 
It took two and a half hours for a meal to finish from the start of the cocktails and the presentation of these wonderful ice sculptures with caviar, and then the main course and the soup course and the fruit and cheese course and then the brandy course. Certainly worth getting dressed up for. Later on, my job was the first-class galley. I was the cook and preparer, and that's what I did for almost 20 years. That was my favorite part, to cook the food in the first-class cabin. Nowadays, though, particularly international, and then coming back to us all in domestic flying is nice service in first class. So just hang in there because I just noticed we had blankets back and the interiors, our aircraft are redesigned and more comfortable. So maybe we just went through a terrible airline challenge there where it got all kind of no frills. We'll see if the frills are back. But I think so. And certainly internationally, it's a nice product. It's a wonderful experience to have the beds we have in first class, wonderful sheets, slippers, jackets, all the uh, television equipment that you could ever handle. So there is a nice product of flying in those cabins that's come back, even domestically. We're speaking with my mom, Ginny van Eerden. Mom, now I'd like to talk to you about international travel and something that people encounter a lot more now, and that's the threat of a hijack. Let's talk about in the 1970s when the pivot happened in the industry from the first major hijacking of an airplane. Yeah, that's when the definition of our career kind of got redefined there. When the phrase hijacking had to be coined. And the one that really began to change it all in a major, major way was in the 70s, I believe, when the jets, empty of passengers though, were blown up in the desert for a political message. That then caused us all kinds of new security. And little did we know, I remember being airborne the day that the PLO chose to make that a way of communication. Palestinian effort needed that message to be sent without life loss, hopefully there. Loss of airplanes. Everything after that and the possibilities of hijackers changed us all. Being on alert, special trainings we had to take for preventing entry into the cockpit. This is kind of like a new definition of our job. Here you have this job that you used to just fly to Florida and sunbathe and have fun for a while, but now you're going to fly an airplane It's going to be pretty serious and there's been this onset of hijackings, all kinds of them. Little did we know, you know, as flight attendants, having a lot of fun there, that they had chosen our industry, the aviation industry. It wasn't the railroad industry yet. It was primarily the airline industry that took on the heavy for protecting our passengers. And also, we carried the message for every hijacker that there was. Mom, where did you fly to during your career? Oh, days off of the vacations were kind of more fun to talk about. The unusual places that I've gone by myself and had this great time, kind of real mountain adventure, fishing adventure, Tasmania. Alaska many times, fly fishing in Mount Kenya. This is my introduction to fly fishing. And I'll never forget that in the end I learned they were using colorful African bird. I'm the other kind that just enjoys the little creek and international routes to Australia and Hong Kong all the China cities in the end, Taiwan, and nonstop. I wanted to have a lot of time off, and so I got my time in by doing a nonstop across the Pacific. The segment that I flew the most was San Francisco, Sydney, Australia, one of the longest ones. San Francisco nonstop to Hong Kong, Japan. Then, you know, eventually when the Chinese opened up to commercial aviation more, then we began to have layovers in Beijing. That was a fun part of my career to see China open up like that. 
We're speaking this evening with Jeannie van Eden, my mom. I would love to play a song. A song about who you are when you're a stewardess or a flight attendant. Well, I chose this one because some articles have been written about us, and one was titled The Smile Wars. But anyway, so we were required to smile and, and to calm people when aviation was not as it's safe as it is today. It is just so safe. So we don't have to have the smile on so much because we don't need to calm you down. So the name of the song is When You're Smiling. Here it's encouraging and keep on smiling. The whole world smiles with you. That's what we had to do. Stand there and, and greet you and calm you because aviation had a couple of rough starts and we want to make sure it's safe. So we are required to smile. It's The Trail Has Traveled with Mandela. We are speaking this evening with my mom, Jeannie van Eden. My mom has traveled extensively throughout Asia, China, Southeast Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, Central America, Australia, and the Pacific Rim. Tonight we're going to be talking to Jeannie about what it was like to work for the airlines in the 1960s. The changes that she has seen in the countries and cities she's been visiting for the past 50 years. It was so interesting during my career is the whole Chinese relation was changed by President Nixon. And I saw that sort of happen right in front of me. Some of our airplanes were in there just before Tiananmen Square happened. And then, of course, it was reinstated later. So I saw history change so much in China. It was incredible. I remember the first time when the Cold War was really over. We all know how much China has changed, just business numbers and population. But I saw a difference from my very first glimpses into mainland China. We used to say the demarcation. For instance, everyone was just wearing a black clothing and a black parka. And there was, you know, lots more people planting rice in the field. And the houses were still somewhat open air, all still left over from communist time when everyone essentially looked alike, had the same parka. But now policies of free enterprise and where there was no cars, for instance, much at all, even in some of the major cities. It was just black bicycles, like swarms of people. Then, you know, several years later, you began to see a few cars and then more cars and then even now elevated freeways above cities. Looking down any street, the major ones in Beijing, it was just swarms and swarms of bicycles, shoulder to shoulder, seemingly not bumping into each other. And then 10-year periods or whatever, we have this most wonderful metropolis, high-rises and whatever. But I had an interesting time span in my career with regard to the wars even. I first helped with the military operation to get men and women, mostly men, to Vietnam in 1965. That was part of the airlift of both directions, taking the men home. In the end of my career, I took the military from the U.S. to a landing base near Iraq operations. I was part of the airlift with a 40-year span of time, two different wars, the Vietnam War and then the last Iraqi war. I helped with the military transportation. Two big bookends of my career. You helped to deliver soldiers to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And fast forward 50 years we went to Vietnam together, flying into Ho Chi Minh City, which at the time during the Vietnam War was called Saigon, and explored the Mekong Delta. Went to the Viet Cong camps that you had heard about so much during the Vietnam War when you were in the United States. 
and to the Kuchi tunnels, the underground tunnel systems in Vietnam. What was it like to travel to Vietnam 50 years after this war? Overwhelming to me to return there. I remember being very emotional in certain parts. The art galleries, for instance, the message that I saw from their works the remnants of army, ours, that left in a hurry. And so in this place there was dog tags of our soldiers and the actual airplanes that you saw during the Vietnam War and then the captured equipment of ours in their land. And I had many gentlemen friends that went to Vietnam and my brother, and so I was emotional. On the other hand, I had this wonderful daughter, Mandy, I call her. She led me to crawl actually among the Coochie tunnels. We actually crawled under the ground for a long time and came across where there was their little hospital. You know, Mom, you have a passion with Australia, and we share that passion. I play the didgeridoo, and a lot of that interest in didgeridoo was sparked from my early travels to Western Australia. We spent a lot of time in Western Australia when I was a child. Most recently in our travels, we've been going to Sydney and then taking trains. Why do you love Australia so much? Well, it's certainly the people. Gosh, they have the best sense of humor. They're like Montanans in a lot of ways and certainly have the same no-fences situation. It is the similarity, I think, of Montana that I like. Their whole style, that's just the whole Australian style. Oh, it's just wonderful. And their their food, mystical. To really go in central Australia and experience that spiritual uh, residual left from the Aboriginal you can feel it when you come across one of their sacred spots. You know, it's usually kind of in a lower valley where there's a spring, and you don't ever want to trespass it if you really know that's the sacred place. The wilderness sort of speaks to me there. I've had that happen in Montana, but I've gotten spiritual messages from when I was really isolated out there, and then we've later found markings in art that perhaps they were there. The sun is always bright. There's a certain light there. That's why a lot of artists go there. The light is very, very particular and bright. And be careful of it because the sunburn thing and the UV thing is quite dangerous there. I was in Tasmania, but I did get lost because I went back. My little fishing pole slipped out of my backpack and I went back to find it. Of course, lost the trail. I did decide to stay warm by a great wool jacket on. And hat, gosh, and I was just so warm, wonderful, and I dozed off long enough to not be really afraid when the light came back, and I didn't really know which direction to go. There were some white parrots in the trees just above me, and, and I thought they were maybe leading toward more water or whatever, so I'm going to go the direction they go, and it was down the drainage, of course, and and they literally led me out, I swear to this day, because they moved, you know, and they all settled down on this one top of these trees, and and waited for me, then I moved, and then they seem to have led me out of my being lost there. Nature speaks to me. It happens in Australia, really. It's just a wonderful place. So tell us about South Africa. You spent a lot of time traveling there, probably have been there over 20 times in your life. You were in South Africa when Nelson Mandela was still in prison, and you were there during the process of him coming out of prison and becoming president, and you were there very recently, and Talk to us about South Africa. Well, that certainly was a 10-year span of interest there where I got to be closely involved with South Africa. And in 1986, 
dark time and, and Nelson Mandela was in prison. There was a lot of censure. Shortly thereafter, I remember hearing this on a little radio that I wound up and I went on a sand dune to see what was going on. I actually heard when de Kirk legalized the ANC. You know, that was the beginning of when the news would come that Nelson Mandela was released. We were there to see a lot of political change. It was a privilege to be there in such momentous times and to see now the recovery after all the peace and reconciliation. It is a beautiful country, and I learned a lot about the Afrikaners, of course. I married into the family there. I got to see the wonderful inside of the real Afrikaner family and know a little bit more about their history. All of these changes happened in that decade that I got to go there a lot. It was a real privilege. We have been speaking with my mom, Jeannie van Eeren, about international travel with United Airlines. Mom, thank you so much for doing this interview and talking to me about your life. Well, it's mighty fine being here, Mandy. And also, you know, part of this is being broadcast right from the banks of the Clark Fork River, you know, in Missoula. And it's really a beautiful setting to be here with my daughter and talk to you. I'd love to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Well, when you're packing your suitcase, you know, kind of check what the latest laws are about butane things that might be in there. They're going to take away or, you know, cause a suitcase check. A lot of people carrying bear spray around, whatever. Speaking of grizzlies, hike with one more person, you know. I don't know about all the other rules, but that's what I kind of conclude. You might as well get a buddy when you're going out there. And they're especially hungry in the October, it seems like. So there's a lot of websites, Center for Disease Control, gov.com, and all those that you can go and read up a little bit before you go far, far away. Maybe, you know, know where your consulates are, your embassies, and read about the politics of where you're going a little bit, and have a good time. The last tip would be to make sure you get a business card or, or something from the hotel you, you check into. I've had so much fun with Mandy now twice recently, fairly, that I've checked into a hotel and we were off our, on our way to go to some great French lunch in Bangkok. And I didn't remember what the name of the hotel was and I thought, oh, I surely can find it back here. But it had this common name. But so we truly got lost in Cambodia for a long time. I by the way, we were in a tuk-tuk. I mean, this, here we are in this very primitive bicycle thing with a man in front and these two wheels. And we're stopping in all the hotels trying to find someone speaking English and help us remember what hotel we'd already checked into. I mean, geez. <laughs> Grab the business card of the hotel, write a couple extra phone numbers, get lost, enjoy it. I never separate myself from my passport. So even though we were in this hotel, I would never have left my passport in the room. No way. So, you know, here I was with lovely Mandy and all of these men. This is evening. You know, as I went into a hotel to ask directions, Mandy was still sitting there on the tuk-tuk. Of course, all these men who run brothels or whatever, or pimps, I guess, are out there surrounding Mandy like a swarm of bees. So she had since then had fun with all these things. And, you know, you might as well just have fun with it. Just go with it. You, know, you can learn something. You probably you meet people as a result of having to go off on the sideline for some event. Or remember that wonderful place we found in Paris just because we were kind of looking for the, the pharmacy? I mean, you know, it, it just led us into another adventure. Once we had to go find a doctor, and then after that, wow, you know, we were in this great alley in, in uh, Paris. So who knows? Thank you so much, Mom. What song would you like to end the show with? 
certainly the song also from the 50s or whatever, the other ones that I selected, it's a song that I heard on the radio every Sunday. We watched the radio, by the way, just in the street. And so it was Dale Evans, I think, perhaps, you know, that would be Roy Rogers' wife, was singing this song called Happy Trails to You. So that's the one I chose. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration, with a new episode coming out every week. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to see pictures and read biographies about this week's guests. I would like to thank my guest for this week, my mom, Jeannie van Eden. A University of Montana graduate, Jeannie became the youngest woman in management for United Airlines in-flight services. In 1963, she began her 40-year career with the airline as a stewardess. Marking historical bookends to a fantastic career, Jeannie took part in MAC civilian aircraft charters for the war in Vietnam. Then preceding her retirement in 2003, Jeannie volunteered for the military aircraft flying our soldiers to the war in Iraq. Beginning in 1983, when mainland China was opening to U.S. visitors, and for the next 20 years, Jeannie chose the Pacific Rim region for flight assignments and vacation destinations. Having completed a three-month wilderness survival course, Jeannie's confidence in solo travel emerged. Fishing destinations included Tasmania, Canada, England, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and South Africa. In 1987, Jeannie, age 45, and her South African husband, Sam, became parents to a daughter, Mandela. Jeannie and her family lived seasonally in their remote hut on the Indian Ocean. Now retired and a loyal visitor to Montana's Lake McDonald, Jeannie can reminisce of many backpacking trips through the Bob Marshall Wilderness and Glacier International Peace Park. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community of Missoula can start adventuring in the same fashion. My safety tip this week is to look both ways before crossing the street. That is, unless you're in Vietnam. Good luck waiting for a pause in traffic in Vietnam. If you're trying to cross a street anywhere in Southeast Asia, I would suggest finding a local and crossing the street at the same pace they walk. The motorcycles time their speed and simply weave around you. It feels like you're going to die the first couple of times, but then you just get used to it. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, please get out there and shred the gnar, because you know the thing about the gnar is... It doesn't shred itself.